We've considered the first two chapters in the last two weeks, and now in what has become a short series in the book of Habakkuk, we'll close tonight with consideration of the final chapter, and we'll read the entire chapter before we get going. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation, or even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundedst the head of the, the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hind's feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this time that we have to gather around Your Word. And we pray now, as we consider this final chapter of the book of Habakkuk, that You would speak to our hearts, give us understanding of Your words, and apply it to our hearts and help us to be submissive and obedient to the application that you apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The last couple of weeks we have been considering uh, what is the journey of Habakkuk's faith. And the book of Habakkuk is the journey of his faith. And it is told through, through what is an extended dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk begins in chapter 1 with a wrestling faith. He does not understand some of the things that God is doing, or in some cases what God is not doing, and he questions why God is inactive and indifferent in the world world of Judah. 
The Lord responds in chapter 1 to Habakkuk to these questions by telling Habakkuk that he is doing something, that he is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to, uh, to judge the nation of Judah for their transgressions. This revelation to Habakkuk raises more questions to Habakkuk. Habakkuk now questions the faithfulness and the wisdom of God uh, with this plan. The wisdom of God in the sense that uh, how can God use a more wicked people to, to destroy and oppress a seemingly less wicked people? He questions the faithfulness of God and how, how is this plan, the rising of the Babylonians to oppress uh, Judah, how is this plan going to, uh, going to allow God to remain faithful to His promises to the nation of Israel? And again, the Lord responds to Habakkuk to these further concerns in chapter 2 with what we considered uh, last week. And in chapter 2, the Lord reveals to, uh, to Habakkuk that He is going to judge Babylon, that the fullness of their transgressions are, are going to be complete. And when they are, the Lord God is going to come down like a hammer upon Babylon. And more importantly, in chapter number 2, the Lord reveals to Habakkuk that the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is above it all. He is in the heavens. He is seated in the heavens and He is untouched by the rise and the fall of nations. And then in fact, He is in control. and He is the one that dictates the rise and the fall of nations. And as we come to chapter number 3, Habakkuk has no more troubling questions. Uh, There is a notable transformation between the Habakkuk that that is revealed to us in chapter 1 and the Habakkuk that is revealed to us in chapter 3. In chapter 1, Habakkuk has a wrestling faith. In chapter 3, Habakkuk has a resting faith. In chapter 1, Habakkuk has a weak faith. In chapter 3, Habakkuk has a strong faith. In chapter 1, Habakkuk has fear. In chapter 3, Habakkuk has faith. And we have noted in both of the last two weeks that it is not necessarily wrong to have questions about the plan of God. How is God doing what He is doing? Why is He doing what? what he is doing. And that is, that is implicit from the book of Habakkuk. God never rebukes Habakkuk for the questions that he brings up to the Lord. He never tells him uh, to simply trust the Lord. He simply responds to the questions that Habakkuk uh, raises. And it is certainly wrong to accuse the Lord of wrongdoing, but it is not necessarily wrong to, uh, to, to question the Lord. And in fact, the questions that Habakkuk raised in the first chapter come from an understanding and an affirmation of the character of God. The reason that he questioned the faithfulness of God was because he knew God was faithful. The reason that he questioned the justice of God was because that he knew God was a just and holy God. So the questions that Habakkuk asked were precisely from the vantage point of believing in the Lord God of Israel. And yet he still had these questions. And nevertheless, though it is not wrong to ask questions of the Lord. You and I would agree that it is better to have a resting faith than a wrestling faith. It is better to not have any questions than to have questions, even if those questions are valid. And I believe it is certainly the Lord's desire for us tonight to move forward in our journey of faith. To move forward from wrestling to resting. To move forward from fear to faith. To move forward from weak faith to strong faith. And we've noted as well that there are a whole host of things that can trouble our faith. Uh, If we speak nationally, we can consider the economic state of our nation. There's a whole host of economic 
problems that beset our nation and that can cause us to be troubled. We can think of the political uh, tenor of this nation. And when you think about the fact that one of the conversations that dominates the political realm in our world is the validity of the transgender movement. That really tells you just about everything you need to know about the morality of our nation. We have moved far past the point of having conversations about the validity of no-fault divorces. And we have moved to the point of having a, uh, having a conversation about the validity of the transgender movement. And in addition to this, the, the, the intensity of the conversation has picked up dramatically. There is an increasing intolerance to people like you and I who hold uh, to, the, to the belief that, that the Bible is our standard of morality. What a, a foreign concept in our world today. And the source of, of your anxiety may be far more personal or dom- domestic. You may be troubled at the spirituality of your spouse. You may be troubled of a wayward child that has departed from the faith. Or maybe for you it's health related. You wonder why God has allowed a certain, a, a certain health issue to afflict you or a, a loved one of yours. And for all of us to varying degrees of severity, there are things that can trouble us. And we can oftentimes turn to God and ask Him why. And the question that we ask to God, why or how, comes from a place of understanding that God is great. The reason we ask God why is because we know that God can do something about what that which troubles us. The reason we ask God how can He allow this is because we know it is Him that allows this. It's very easy to ask the Lord, these, uh, these questions. And, and if, if these questions are not in your heart now or have not come into your heart and your soul uh, yet, do not be lifted up with pride. It is very easy for these questions to fill your heart, to fill your mind, and to fill your soul. It is very easy to be afflicted with such circumstances that you begin to ask the Lord God why or how He has allowed this into your life. But as we look at the final chapter of the book of Habakkuk, we're asking the question, how can we move from fear to faith? How can we move from a wrestling faith to a resting faith? And as I look at the chapter before us this evening, I break the chapter down into three parts. The first two parts reveal the key to moving from a wrestling faith to a resting faith. And the last part of the chapter gives us an idea of what a resting faith looks like. If you look with me in the first two verses, we see that Habakkuk receives a renewed sense of the worth of God. Notice in verse number 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. Shigianoth. Now what follows in chapter 3 is highly poetic. In fact, this chapter could very easily be included in the Psalms and you wouldn't really notice anything different. It's very much like the Psalms. And in fact, verse number 1 before us really serves as the inscription that we oftentimes see above the, above the Psalms. Now, speaking of the word Shigianoth, uh, no one really knows what that is or what they are. I mean, really, it's that confusing. We, we really don't have an idea as to what that is. The only time that anything like this word is found in Scripture is in Psalms 7, in the inscription above Psalm 7 where it reads, Shigion of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. 
I think it's clear from that and from this chapter that whatever Shigianoth is, it has to do with music. Now, and I say that because in this chapter, we see at the end of the chapter, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So this is meant to be put to music. So Psalm 7, Habakkuk 3 are both uh, chapters of music. So I, I would assume that Shigianoth has something to do with music, but beyond that, I don't have a clue what it means. And I look forward to you Bible scholars informing me after the service as to what it means. In verse number 2, the song begins, and Habakkuk says in verse number 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Now Habakkuk is no doubt referring to the revelation that God gave him in chapter number 2, where the Lord revealed to Habakkuk that Babylon was going to be, uh, was going to be destroyed, was going to be oppressed for the oppression that they had enforced upon the nation of Israel. The Lord reminded him at the end of the chapter that, that God's glory is preeminent, that the glory of God would fill the earth, as we see in verse number 14 of chapter number 2, and that the Lord was in His holy temple, verse 20 of chapter, uh, chapter 2. And in response to the revelation that God gives to Habakkuk in chapter 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. He has reached the point, as we see in the last verse of chapter 2, the point of keeping silent before the Lord in His holy temple. He is ready to be silent before God. Now, in my opinion, I don't think that Habakkuk's acceptance or submission to the Word of God has really anything to do with Babylon. I don't think it has anything to do with the revelation concerning the, the impending judgment on the nation of Babylon. Rather, I think that the response of Habakkuk has everything to do with the revelation that God gave Habakkuk concerning God, who God is. And the reason I believe that is because, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. The response of Habakkuk was fear. Now, where would this fear come from? There is nothing in chapter 2 concerning Babylon that should provoke Habakkuk to fear. The judgment of Babylon that the Lord reveals to Habakkuk in chapter 2 has nothing to do with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is far removed from that judgment. But what he is not removed from is the Lord. The Lord in His holy temple. And it is a common occurrence in Scripture that as God's people get a fresh vision of the God of heaven, they are moved to a renewed sense of the fear of God. In Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder with the Lord standing at the top of it. And when Jacob woke up, this is what the Scriptures say his response is. He said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not, and he was afraid. He was provoked provoked to a fear of the Lord. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel gets a vision of heaven. And at the end of the chapter, Ezekiel says this, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. Uh, The most notable and probably famous example of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets a fresh vision of the Lord in heaven. And he says uh, in Isaiah 6, In the year that that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. A little later on he says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. And these are just a few examples. There are many more examples of when God reveals Himself to His people, whether by vision or by speech, God's people are moved 
to a renewed sense of the fear of God. Uh, They are awestruck at the holiness, awestruck at the glory, the character, the righteousness, the justice, the holiness of God, and they are moved to fear. When Ezekiel saw the glory of God, he fell on his face. He was unable to stand upright in the presence of God. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, the holiness of God, he was moved to confess his iniquity before the Lord. And when Habakkuk heard the word of the Lord, when he received this vision from the Lord, he was struck by the unparalleled glory and holiness of God. And it may seem paradoxical that the first key to moving from a wrestling faith to a resting faith is that we receive a renewed sense of the fear of God. After all, we're trying to move from fear to faith. But it is only once we have discovered a fear of God that it can displace our fear of our circumstances. It is only when we have a greater fear of God than that of our circumstances that we can move into a resting faith. For if we do not fear God, we do not know God. And if we do not know God, we cannot trust God. And put another way, the more you get to know God, the more you will fear Him. And the more you fear God, the more you will trust Him. And it is only when we see a great big God that the fear of our circumstances begin to look small in comparison. And have we not lost our fear of God? Do we marvel at the holiness of God anymore? Do we tremble at our own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God? Are we awestruck at the power of God? Do we spend time meditating on the wisdom of God? I would suggest to you that we have gotten past the point of God and we have begun to focus on ourselves. In fact, I would suggest that in this day day and hour that the study of God is one of the most neglected fields of study. Theology is a field of study only for those that wish to do ministry, wish to be involved in ministry. We are more interested in some practical insight that might help us get through the week, as I have heard so many times. We are more interested in interesting illustrations that can keep our attention. And we have gotten past what we really need, and that is God. We need to dig into the Scriptures to see God. We need Him to reveal Himself to us and and reveal Himself in such a way that causes us to tremble and then to see ourselves in light of Him and tremble in light of our own iniquity. The first key to moving from a wrestling faith to a resting faith is that we gain a renewed sense of the worth of God. But continuing that thread in verses 3 to 15, we see Habakkuk reminded himself of the works of God. Now, verse number 3 is highly poetic, really begins a highly poetic section. Uh, Habakkuk begins here in verse number 3 to recite the past works of God. And he uses the history of Israel as a source to draw from. And what we see in these verses uh, is really three themes uh, that are woven through the verses. And they're they're not linear, they're woven through. They're here, they're there, they're all throughout. But the three themes that we see in these verses are the majesty of God, the mighty power of God, and the mercy of God. Look with me at verse number 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Teman was in the land of Edom, uh, which was 
to the south of the land of Judah. And Paran is associated in Scripture with Mount Sinai, with the land of Sinai, uh, which is even further southwest of the land of Edom. And what Habakkuk says in verse number 3 is that God came from these places. And what Habakkuk is really doing is he is, as he begins to unfold uh, the themes of this psalm, is he begins to draw a map in our minds of the land that surrounded Israel, the world that surrounded Israel. Uh, and he focuses here on the nations that played a larger role in the history of Israel, specifically those that oppressed the nation of Israel, in this case Egypt and Edom. And what he says here is that God came from there. He came from Teman and from Paran. In other words, what he is saying is God was at work in the world of old. Uh, God was working in Egypt. God was working in Edom. He was working most obviously in the deliverance of His people from the land of Egypt. Now we're not going to go back and recite the deliverance of Egypt or deliverance of Israel from, from Egypt, uh, nor will we consider in length how God led Israel through the wilderness. Nor will we really consider in length how God led them into and through the promised land. But just by mentioning those and by taking a quick glance at, a glance at history, we are reminded that God truly was at work in the, in the lives of Israel of old. It is abundantly obvious from the first part and even the Psalms and other portions of Scripture that God was working. And that is the primary point we are to gather. That God was at work in the history of the nation of Israel. And we notice at the end of verse number 3 what, uh, what Habakkuk says. He says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. It's not just that God was at work in, the, in, in Israel of old, but that the glory of God was manifested in the works of God. In all things that we see God doing in Scripture, in delivering Israel from Egypt, in leading them through the wilderness, in leading them to and through the promised land, we see God glorified. In fact, that's the most predominant thing that we see, is we see the glory of God manifested in how He led the nation of Israel. And as Habakkuk goes on in verses 4 to 6, what he is focusing on now is that majesty and that mighty power of God, the glory of God manifested in the powerful acts of God. Verse number four, his brightness was as the light. And I believe that's a reference to the time that Moses spent 40 days in the Mount, in Mount Sinai. When he came down, his face shone from the time spent with the glory of God. And they had to put a veil on his face to, face to cover the glory of God that, that shone on his face. We see again in verse number 4, he had horns coming out of his hands. Now that is what we call uh, theologically an anthropomorphism, uh, which is simply referring to the times in Scripture when a, 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 a physical part, mostly human parts, are ascribed to God in order to help us understand uh, what God is doing. God does not have hands. God does not have eyes. He does not have ears. He does not have a mouth. He does not have a nose. No more than God is a rock. He is none of these things. He is a spirit. Uh, And yet the Scriptures use these human parts especially to describe the Lord God because if they did not use anthropomorphisms, we would have a very difficult time understanding what the Lord does in our world. And what we find here is that He had horns coming out of His hands. 
I believe what, uh, what Habakkuk is trying to say is something about the power of God. Uh, I have no idea what the horns coming out of his hands are in reference to. And again, I look forward to you theologians informing me as to what they are in reference to at the end of this, this message. At the end of verse number 4, we see in there was the hiding of his power. When the Lord revealed His glory to Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 33, 32 and 33, the Lord was only able to show Moses a certain, certain portion of His glory, the backsides of God as it were. And, and even then, Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. So the, the glory of God was hidden from Moses. And what we find in that is actually the glory of God uh, is revealed to us to be so glorious that it had to be Hidden. We see in verse number 5, Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. Clearly that is a reference to the ten plagues uh, that were sent to, to the nation of Egypt in order to cause them to let uh, God's people go. And it's interesting on multiple occasions in the book of Exodus that we find the Lord telling Moses that the reason for the plagues was so that both Egypt and Israel would know that God was the only true God. So that Israel would know that the God that was leading them through the land was the one true God. And so that Egypt would know that their false gods were not. And that there was only one true God, the God of heaven, Jehovah. We see in verse number 6, He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Here God is pictured as measuring the earth. He is cutting the nations down. He is scattering the nations. And in verse number 7, I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Uh, here he is, the Lord is shown uh, afflicting Cushan, uh, the land of Cush, and He shows uh, the Lord afflicting and causing the Midianites to tremble. And the picture that Habakkuk has drawn for us in verses 3 to verse 7 is of a God that is almighty, that is all-glorious. And in verse 8, Habakkuk is going to continue these themes down through really the end of the chapter. But in verse number 8, we see a slight shift in the language of Habakkuk. Uh, In verse number 8, Habakkuk goes from referencing the Lord in the third person to referencing the Lord in the second person. He goes from talking about God to talking to God. God in the middle of the verse. Look at it in verse number 8. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? And we'll come back to these questions in a, uh, in a short, short moment. But what I want you to see, that, see through these, these verses, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10 and on, is still these themes that are continued in these verses of the majesty of the might of God that we see here. Verse 9, Thy bow was made quite naked. Perhaps this is a reference to lightning, uh, which can be used and which was used as a weapon by God to afflict uh, the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God, sort of like arrows that are shot out uh, from a bow. Verse number 10, The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice, and lifted up his hands on high. Here the mountains, the, uh, the, the overflowing of the water, the deep is personified as being the servants of God. 
And they, they are willing to shake things up quite literally to do the bidding of God, to obey the Lord God. Verse number 11, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. Uh, I believe that is a reference to the time in which uh, Joshua was, uh, was at fight against the Amorites in Gibeah. And the Lord extended the daylight in order to give Joshua the victory over the Amorites. And what is Habakkuk saying in all of these verses? And I believe it is this, that God is at work in the world. And not only was God at work in the world, but God was sovereign and control of all things. He was the one that dictated the rise and the fall of nations. And He was the one that used nature at His disposal. In fact, not only was He the one that dictated the rise and fall, but He is the one who caused the rise and fall of empires. Uh, He was the one that spoke to the storms and caused the earthquakes and said to the sun, stand still. He is the sovereign Lord of all. Whether it be nations or whether it be nature, He is in control of all things and nothing, nothing stops Him from accomplishing His purposes. Now look with me back at verse number 8. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Now, Habakkuk here is asking a couple of or a few rhetorical questions in order to make a point. He asks, Is God angry at the rivers? Is he mad at the rivers? Now, the obvious answer to that question is no. God is not angry at the rivers. They they are not persons. He has no reason to be angry at the rivers. And what Habakkuk is getting at is the motivation of God. Why did God do what He did? Why did He use the rivers? Why did He use nature in the way that He used them? And of course, the immediate answer of the text is that He used nature to bring to naught Egypt. That's obvious, through the ten plagues. He used nature at His disposal to bring to naught the armies of the nation of Israel. But, but, but there's even a deeper question, because why did He bring to not the nation of Israel? And in fact, why is Egypt mentioned here? Why is Edom mentioned here? Uh, why is Cush mentioned here? Why, uh, why, why is the Midianites enter, entered uh, um, uh, here in, in Habakkuk chapter 3? And we get some answers to these questions in verse number 13. Look with me there if you will. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. The reason the Lord exercised His sovereignty over all things, nations and nature, in the way that He did was for the benefit of His people, for the salvation of His people. Why did God come from Teman and Paran? For the salvation of His people. Why did God persecute the four nations mentioned here? Because they persecuted Israel. Why did God use nature in the way that He did? He did it for the benefit of His people. And what we see in this chapter is that God is at work in the world. And that what God is doing in this world is for the glory of God, first and foremost. That all things God does brings about His glory. But secondly, we see God is at work for the good of His people, for the benefit of of his people. Now again, in verse number 13, another question arises. Look with me again there. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation 
with thine anointed. Now, who is the anointed of verse number 13? And I, I believe historically speaking, it's, uh, it's King Cyrus, King Cyrus of King of Persia. Uh, the Persian Empire would be risen by God uh, in, in order to uh, wipe out the Babylonian Empire, to overtake the Babylonian Empire rather, and to deliver God's people from Babylonian captivity. But don't miss the point. I don't think that the primary application is the historical one here. I think the primary, primary application is the prophetic one. Because the anointed one is not so much Cyrus as it is Jesus. He is the one who went forth for the salvation of His people. And He is the one that will finally and ultimately come forth from the heavens to save His people from their oppressors. We find out about this Jesus, this anointed one in Daniel 2, when He will establish a kingdom finally and ultimately upon this earth that will never, ever be overthrown by any rival to it. And in that day, the nation of Israel will be in a worse predicament than the one that they are in Habakkuk chapter 3. They will be surrounded by their enemies. And their enemies will be the armies of all the Gentile nations. And in the nick of time, the Lord Jesus is going to descend from heaven and He is going to wipe out the enemies of the nation of Israel. And He is going to establish upon this earth a kingdom that shall never be overthrown. The kingdom of King David, ultimately and originally. And this kingdom will never lose its power or glory ever again. So not only do we see... And the, and the, point, the point that I'd like to make there is that not only was God at work in the past, but God is at work in the present and in the future of the nation of Israel. He has not only worked in the history of the nation of Israel, but He is planning to do work in the future and establishing that kingdom upon the earth forever. He is working over nations and He is controlling nature. God is at work. And while Habakkuk 3 is obscure in certain points, it is poetic and poetry is meant to be obscure. I guess you're meant to talk around what you're trying to say rather than saying what you're actually trying to say. So there are obscure parts of Habakkuk chapter 3. But the overall point is very clear. That God is at work in our world. He, he was at work in the, wor- in the world of yesteryear. He is at work today. And He will be working in this world forevermore. And the other overall point from this passage is this, that God is victorious, that He will overcome all of His enemies. There is no rival to God. No, not Pharaoh of Egypt, no, not Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. There is no rival, there is no challenger of God. And just as it was in Habakkuk's day, so it is in our day today. We look at the God of the Bible and we see Him working then. It is evident from the pages of Scripture that God was at work in the lives of the people, the people of the Bible. But just as He was working then, so is He working today. And we may think God is inactive or indifferent in our world today. We may seemingly wonder, we may wonder why He is seemingly absent in our world today, but know this: God is at work. He is at work in our world. He is at work in our nation. He is at work in our individual lives. But it's not just that He is working, but it is that He is working to a specific end. And throughout all of history, including today, God is working first and foremost for His own glory, for the fame of His own name. 
But secondly, He is working for the good of His people. Do I need to remind you of the promise that is made to you and I, Gentile believers in Scripture? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to, the pur- according to His purpose. Now that does not mean that God is working for our pleasure or for our comfort. God is not concerned with our pleasure or comfort. And many times His work in our lives and in our world will bring about very uncomfortable situations. Sometimes He puts troubling things into our lives. Yet we can be confident in this. He is working for our good. And what is our good? Well, He goes on in Romans 8 to tell us. Because in Romans 8, He tells us that our good is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And it is not only that God is at work in our world and that He is working for His glory and for our good, but it is that it is guaranteed. He predestinated us to be conformed into the image of His Son. That means that it is absolutely guaranteed. There is nothing... If you are a born-again believer, a child of God, there is nothing in this world that can keep God from bringing about your conformity to the image of His Son. And I may not be able to explain all that troubles you. I may not be able to explain all that God is doing in the world today. But I do know this, that He is working. And that He is working for His glory and for your good. And it is when we have an extreme confidence in this, that He is working for our good, that we move from a wrestling faith to a resting faith. Let's pray.